Just last week, I was speaking to the third largest concrete company in America, and a gentleman walked up to me after I finished talking, and he said, you know, I'm 63 years old. I've probably got you know, three or four years left at the company, and I am dying to teach some of these 36-year-old plant managers everything I know about the concrete business. In fact, everything I know about business. I wish that was a, a, a rare time that somebody came up to me and said something like that, but it's actually fairly common. I think what's missing in our culture and in some of our companies is the ability to pass down knowledge from generation to generation, to actually teach business to those coming behind us. Now, the reality is we're not born teachers and, and we're not born with the list of things we need to teach, but we do have a lot of experience. That's where Business Made Simple actually comes in. We have a certified business coach program. We already have hundreds of Business Made Simple certified coaches who run coaching businesses both outside of companies, that is, they are, they are private contractors and they just run their own coaching business, but also inside of companies. We actually call them teaching operators. They're, they're people who teach within the same company they work in. They teach business and they teach our curriculum. Our curriculum is robust. It teaches leadership. It teaches marketing. It teaches sales. It teaches how to keep overhead down. It teaches how to manage cash flow very practical knowledge about how to run a business. If you think you would be a great certified business coach, that is, you have at least 10 years of business experience and you're looking at the people around you and you're saying, gosh, I wish I could teach these people some of what I know, we have a program for you. All you need to do is apply to be one of our coaches. You just go to certifiedbusinesscoach.com, certifiedbusinesscoach.com. You fill out an application one of our directors will call you. We'll just have a short intake meeting. We'll see if we're the right fit for each other. And if we are, we'll put you into one of our certification training programs. In a short period of time, you could become a certified business coach. You could know the Business Made Simple curriculum inside and out, plus all of that institutional knowledge that you've collected over the years, and your wisdom will not go to waste. It will be passed on to the next generation. We would love for you to be a Business Made Simple Certified Coach. Again, to apply, just go to CertifiedBusinessCoach.com, CertifiedBusinessCoach.com. We can't wait to meet you. Welcome to the Business Made Simple Podcast, the best place to grow yourself, the best place to grow your team, the best place to grow your business. This week, we're answering the question, how can you become a master negotiator and start striking winning deals with confidence? Our co-hosts, Kula Callahan and Dr. J.J. Peterson, answer that question by breaking down the six pillars of negotiation, giving you a roadmap on how to manage yourself in a negotiation. Then host Donald Miller talks with Dr. John Lowry, leading negotiation expert and instructor of our newest course at Business Made Simple University, Negotiation Made Simple. John shares with us what it's like inside a high-stakes negotiation and how he approached each one to get the desired outcome. Now, let's check in with our co-hosts, Kula Callahan and Dr. J.J. Peterson. Kula. Hey. hey. Remember a while back when you invited me over for dinner? I'm so nervous. Where is this going? <laughs> you, Where is this conversation going? You invited me over for dinner. We were having some people over. This a while back. And you asked me to come over early because- As I do. Yes, as you do. Because, but this was very specific, you had a plumber- coming to your house to fix your garbage disposal. Oh my God, yes, because it broke. <laughs> yes, so he he came over and was going to fix your garbage disposal for 50 bucks. Yeah, it's like a flat fee. A flat fee, but yeah. then he started 
good to try to upsell you yes. on his services, kind yes. of do a subscription service for you. And what happened? <laughs> I'm literally, as we're sitting here recording this, my shoulders are caving in and I'm like, no, don't make me go back to this place. I, like I said, started sweating and breaking down in hives and I literally looked to you for help. Because I was like, JJ, please tell him no. Please tell him no. I can't tell him no. <laughs> this is going to turn into a, like some sort of competitive negotiation where he's going to start yelling at me because I don't want his service <laughs> and I need backup. So please help me. And then I threw in the white towel and my SOS flag was uh, waving. Yeah. And the reason I bring that up is because, you know, we know that you tend to be conflict avoidant That's in those true. kind of situations. Yeah. Like if the server brings me a dish that has the wrong, yep. you know, whatever, I will eat it and never say a word. Yep. I, where I'm the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it makes me so uncomfortable. But this is actually not a great, I mean, if I or you or anyone doesn't feel confident going into a situation or a conversation where you might have to negotiate a little bit, yeah. then you just set yourself up for failure. And you leave a lot on the table. Well, because we're negotiating all the time. And we and don't even know it, yeah, really. Would really argue that probably over 50% of your work week involves some kind of negotiation. Yeah. Right? Like and we're whether, not talking about like negotiating huge contracts, no, though that might always. be part of yep. your job. Yep. But like deciding, you know, when to launch a product or like what to say in a sales email if you're working with a team. Like it's a negotiation. And so learning how to negotiate and understanding the rules of negotiation. Because there are rules. There are rules to negotiation and it's something you can get better at. Which is such a gift. Yes. For the people in the world that are like me. Which I really, well, and I think that that's a big part of how you've continued to move forward is you actually now understand this. You totally. understand yeah. that not every negotiation needs to be competitive. That's right. actually one of the things about negotiation is there are different types of negotiation. That's right. Yep. So it's not always win-lose. Mm -hmm. That there are rules and things that can set you up for success for not just you, but the other party involved. Right. And when you understand these rules, then you are not only more successful at negotiation, but it becomes more comfortable. It's, totally. a, it's a muscle that you can develop. Right, right. And I didn't realize this. And there's probably a lot of people listening who hear the word negotiation and think they're going to have to, like, you know, put on battle armor and go up against somebody and fight until the death. Right. Yeah. That's just not the case. Not every negotiation is win-lose. Yeah. Most negotiations, in fact, can be win-win. You just have to understand the rules and the tactics and the strategy that you're going to go into the conversation with so that you can produce more win-win outcomes in work and in life. And we actually have just recently released a course in Business Made Simple University called Negotiation Made Simple. That's right. <laughs> John Lowry, who is a law professor at Pepperdine University and has helped gigantic global brands understand how to negotiate, teaches the course. And it's so freaking helpful. Yeah. Like it's super practical, of course, but it's just so helpful to be armed with these skills and knowledge so that I can go into really any conversation knowing exactly how to manage myself yep. so that both parties get the desired outcome. And Don is going to actually be interviewing John Lowry today and talking about some of his most interesting situations that he was in with negotiation. Ooh, so that are, fun. It's so fun. He has so many amazing fun stories. So they're going to be talking about that. But I thought before we get into that, you and I would talk about the pillars of negotiation. What are the things people need to understand about negotiation that we teach in the course that can help people set up for success. 
There are really six main things that every skilled, sophisticated negotiator knows and does. The first one is that they know how to manage themselves. Yes. This is the first thing you have to get right, because if your mind ain't right going into a negotiation, (laughs) you screw yourself over and you lose, essentially. And it's the only thing you actually have control over. That's right. Yeah. You have control over yourself and the process, but really you can't control the way the other person is acting. Right. You can only control yourself. The second pillar, if you will, is you have to make the first move. Yes. Now, let's go back to the garbage disposal man. Yes. Bless him. <laughs> if I had made, quote, made the first move then and said, hey, thanks so much. This is all I needed from you today. Like, have a nice life. Yeah. I would have been able to avoid the stress and anxiety that I felt within my body yeah. for the four <laughs> minutes of like back and forth that we had. Yeah. So it's really important not only to, number one, manage yourself, but also to make the first move. When you set that anchor, yes. if you will, it allows you to manage the negotiation to your benefit and to the benefit of the other party. Yep. It really sets the anchor and manages expectations. Totally. It basically yeah. says, here's where we're going to go in this negotiation because if if it starts too low or too high then you already know oh this negotiation is going nowhere or it gives you perspective on where the negotiation is going to head so after you make the first move then you have to understand how to navigate competitive negotiation. So there are two different types of negotiation that we talk about in the course, competitive negotiation and cooperative negotiation. And these are really different approaches that you take when you're going into any kind of situation and you can decide before you even get into the negotiation what type you are going to be. Now, you also can adjust mid-negotiation based on what the other person is doing. If you Mm -hmm. go in cooperative, and they are starting competitive, then you have to be able to switch. You have to be able to understand what type of negotiation strategy they are employing. And you have to change yours based on that. Now, we go into this in the course a lot, but it's based on the value of relationship or the value of an issue. So competitive negotiation values issues more than it does personal relationship. Yes. So in this case, like, let's go back to your uh, garbage Garbage disposal. disposal, (laughs) The most important thing in this situation was that you were going to get a good price on your garbage disposal and you weren't really caring too much about maintaining a long-term relationship (laughs) with this plumber, right? Can confirm. And so because the relationship value was low and the issue value was high, you could be competitive. And so you're trying to get the best value in this negotiation. So that's that's one of the pillars of this is understand, are you in a competitive or are you in a cooperative type of negotiation? Yeah. And number four, the fourth pillar is to understand when to, quote, go below the line in a yes. cooperative negotiation. Going below the line means putting things on the table that are of interest to the relationship, not the issue. Okay, so then the fifth pillar is they understand and can manage tactics. So in any negotiation, (laughs) tactics will be used against you, right? The old bait and switch, the old all or nothing, right? There's a number of different tactics that will be used against you. And the great news is you can understand what those tactics are and you can also learn how to manage them so that they go away. Yeah. And it's, again, a very practical step by step sort of almost talk track that John Lowry teaches in the course on how to uh, mitigate those tactics, if you will. But the important thing is that you have to know that they're going to be used against you. And you have to know how to disarm the other person when they pull them out. And here's the thing that I love about the Business Made Simple course on negotiation that is different from other people's courses on negotiation. 
other courses on negotiation focus on the tactics and that's it. It's basically teaching you like how to put your chair two inches taller than other people (laughs) and how to turn up the heat in the room or leave the room and go talk to a supervisor before coming back. You know, those are all tactics. And what John does in the negotiation made simple course is he goes, you need to recognize those cheap tricks that other people have taught, (laughs) name them in the moment and get rid of them and then get down to the real business of negotiation. Yeah, it's so good. Okay, the final pillar of our negotiation conversation is this, understand how to satisfy both parties. And this is something that I didn't know. I thought that every negotiation was win-lose. Someone's going to win and someone's going to lose and that relationship is going to go sour because of that. That's just not true. That's a myth of negotiation. So in this final pillar that John teaches in the course, he reveals that that is indeed a myth and he teaches you how to satisfy both parties, even if you're in a competitive negotiation. Ultimately, you're trying to figure out what is the end result that we're trying to achieve here. Totally. And when you can identify that from the beginning, you can figure out what strategies you want to use. So these pillars really are so key to helping us understand how to be successful in negotiation. And John teaches these in the Negotiation Made Simple course that we have in Business Made Simple University. But today, Don is going to actually interview John Lowry and he's going to actually talk about some of his most intense negotiations and how the tactics and the strategies he used led to some amazing outcomes. Yeah. So here is Don's interview with John Lowry. John, getting this right, what JJ and Kula just talked about, getting this right has enormous ramifications. I mean, understanding that you're in a process, control, managing yourself, making opening offers in competitive negotiations, understanding if you're in a competitive or cooperative negotiation, all of that matters huge. You've been negotiating high stakes stuff for what, 20 years probably. Good long time. You negotiate more than a million dollars a month in building uh, uh, processes and construction plans and all that for Lipscomb University right now in your current gig. I want to know, you know, we all want the stories, right? The high stakes stories and all that kind of stuff. Walk me into the, the negotiation room and tell me when something went right, when people actually handled it well. Well, I think there's a moment, a, a lot of my experience really comes from working with clients and sharing the journey with them. And, and in many cases, you know, stepping into the role of taking the lead in negotiating uh, various things. A lot of the experience I have is in the form of litigation and trying to help people resolve lawsuits. And those take uh, the form of very significant negotiation that is required in order to try to get those resolved. Those kind of negotiations, they take on more pressure in the decision-making process because you don't necessarily have the opportunity to just do what you think is best in the negotiation you have a lot of other people sitting around the room and you've got a lot of other interests that you have to solve for as well. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that's really important for people to understand is as they're managing a deal or as they're managing a problem, they're actually managing about five, six, seven, maybe eight negotiations at one time hmm. because all of the interested parties have different interests in terms of how they want to see it resolved. So I'll give you a great example of a case that I had where we had a situation where this case had been sitting around for years and years and years. And that means what? That means it keeps going into court, gets thrown out of one court, changed, brought back to court, sent up to a higher court. What, do you, what does it mean when it sits around for years? Yeah, it means it just hasn't gone to trial yet. 
Because they're still negotiating the deal points? Or? They're still doing discovery. They're waiting Got to it. finally get onto the docket. But at the end of the day, uh, at least in the context of this um, personal injury, professional liability case, what you had was you had a family that needed money and they were suffering. And yet you had a process that didn't serve them very, very well. When I got involved, one of the things that I asked was a question that doesn't really get asked. And that is, you know, where are the parties emotionally? And it was a different question because the lawyers, they knew, they, they knew the law. They knew how this whole thing was postured legally. They knew the points that there were strengths on and they knew they're playing the chess with what they think on. are dead pieces of wood on a board. Yeah. But we're dealing with people here. Yeah. And there was just no way that they were going to come together to get this case resolved. I mean, we were talking tens of millions of dollars apart. Absolutely. You know, the litigation process and particularly the trial process, lawyers love it. It's tremendous fun. There is nothing more fun than trying a case, but it's not great for the parties. Mm -hmm. They don't like going through that. They don't like getting on the witness stand and having people interrogate them. They just don't like it. It's not a great process. Right. Uh, so this is where this was headed. And there was going to be a big winner and a big loser and just didn't know who. And in that context, people are completely out of control because they're turning it over to 12 strangers to make the decision right. as to who's going to win and who's going to lose. And no one really knows what's going to happen. Lots of surprises. So the way that these parties can control their destiny is to try to settle the case. And that's how they can strike a deal that makes sense for everyone. But they weren't able to get there. There was barriers. And the barrier in this case was the anger of a mother. Uh, this was the case that was involving a child. And the child had been injured. As mom was working through this, we had a lot of expert testimony. And the expert testimony, when the child began showing some symptoms, the expert testimony was that the child didn't present to the hospital quick enough. Now, the experts, they were saying that because they were thinking about this whole case from the perspective of the doctors who treated the child. And those were some of the issues in this case. What they weren't thinking about when they were rendering those opinions was what that was saying about the mom. Mm -hmm. They were putting the fault on the mom, right? right. They didn't mean to. That's what, that was not what they were intending to do, but that's what they ended up doing. So she's getting more and more defensive, more and more angry. That's right. And so I, I think whenever you see someone who's really, really angry, there's always something that they're afraid of. And so you have to ask the question, what are you afraid of? What are they afraid of? And so with this mom, remember, this had been going for seven years. And finally, we got to the place to where we asked the right question, which unlocked the deal ultimately. And that is, what is mom afraid of? In this case, mom was afraid that what happened to her son was her fault. Hmm. And so what's the only way in which mom can get out of that? The only way she can get out of it is if the other side admits fault or this goes to a jury and the jury says... It's their fault, not your fault. It, it seems obvious now that you say it. Maybe it would have taken the rest of us and listeners to a little while to figure that out. Why couldn't lawyers see that? Why did it take you to come in and go, hey, there's something else happening here? Yeah, I mean, I think law school is doing a better job of it. And I think there's, there are a lot of lawyers that uh, kind of look for those things. But, you know, again, the, the lawyers, they're asked to think about the risk right. that's associated with 
the law and with the liability. And they're dealing at that level. They're just looking, they're, they're trying to figure out who's culpable and how much we're exposed and all that. That's right. And, and that tends to equate itself to money. When this particular party, what was driving their position to demand so much and to never consider coming off of it, it was fear. How did you end up negotiating that? How did you, did you go to the mom and talk yeah, to her? Yeah, an, an incredible moment. We, and again, it took me six months, and it's important for people to know this. It took me six months to negotiate a moment to be able to deal with this. You're kidding. Six months to get, to, to spend time with Just the mother, to period. Just the moment. Uh, because we had to convince the lawyers and the mediators and even our own side that it would make sense to have this kind of human moment where we tried to deal with mom's fear. And everyone was like, whoa, that might, that's not going to be constructive. She's well, angry. Well, certainly if you go in and admit your culpability, yeah. she's got leverage on you, right? That would be the, exactly. the intuition. And no yeah. one wanted to do that either. I mean, it was, it was fraught full of challenges, which is why it took so long to negotiate the process. But once we got the process negotiated and we created this moment, it was an absolutely beautiful moment. We actually had a nurse that was part of this team who was also a mother of three boys. And she was a very senior nurse. She'd been a nurse for 30, 35 years or so. We asked this nurse if she would be willing to have a conversation with his mother. And to do that as part of a mediation where everything would be confidential, but this nurse would be able to speak freely to this mother and to help this mother understand the medicine and help this mother understand that there was nothing that she should have done differently in caring for her child in response to the injury. And so here we had this moment where the nurse walks in and the drama of the moment was so powerful where usually it's a standard conference room and you would expect the nurse to just talk from her seat right across the table. But there's a lot of symbolism in what the nurse did where the nurse, in this case, she got up, she walked around the table to the other side of the table. And I want people to appreciate how yeah. significant that is to say we're not on opposite sides. Yeah. Uh, I'm on your side here. She pulled up a chair and she sat down, knee to knee with this mother, and she literally put her hands out to her. And the lady, kind of not knowing what to do, just reached out her hands. This nurse grabbed this lady's hands and she looked across her and she said, I've been a nurse for 35 years. She goes, I've seen everything. She goes, I've also raised three boys. And she goes, I've seen all of their sports injuries and all of their sicknesses. I've seen everything there too. And here's what I can tell you. If my boy came home and had the same injury that yours did, with all of my medical training, with all of my medical expertise and experience, and with my time as being a mother, there is not a thing I would have done differently than what you did. Hmm. Now, once that moment happened, where mom didn't have to bear the burden of her being culpable in any way in terms of what happened to her son, what do you think happened that didn't happen for seven years prior to that moment? Hmm. That case settled, and it settled in about two hours. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's called going below the line. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's the power of it. It's a beautiful story, and it, it tells us a lot about human beings and a lot about ourselves. It's also counterintuitive. Very. I mean, if you're in the middle of a negotiation, it's really hard 
to stop and say, okay, let me look at this from the other person's perspective. What, you know, how is this making them defensive? How is this making them afraid? How am I making them angry? How am I offending their ego? You know, all those sorts of things. Is that part of your process? I mean, is there a point as you're considering your strategic process where it's not so much intuitive, but you actually say, okay, this is the part where we stop and we ask ourselves some questions about what's going on the other side. How do you fit that in? Yeah, I think there's a couple of different strategic moments where you think about that. First is at the very beginning before you negotiate, before you even get started, trying to do your best to understand what the other side is trying to achieve. And then thinking creatively before you walk into the room about how you can help them achieve that, but do so in a way that also achieves what you want to achieve right. without sacrificing anything at all. And so I think there's a moment at the very beginning to think about that. Uh, there's also a moment to where when things just aren't productive, when you're not getting any closer to a deal, when people are starting to get frustrated, there's a moment to take the conversation in a different direction. And the way I tell people to do that is to simply instead of just rehashing your position for the 17th time, which the other side will then reject for the 17th time, uh, to then take the conversation a different way and just to start asking questions. To say, help me understand, tell me about. Because in doing that, at least what I found in my experience, is people can't help themselves. They will talk. Yeah. And when they talk, they will give cues and they will give signals and they will give hints at things that are important to them that as a sophisticated negotiator, you can hear, you can latch onto, and you can work with in terms of trying to resolve the problem. Hmm. One of the most fascinating things and probably the, the uh, uh, there's so many great lessons from the course, but the idea that there are competitive and cooperative negotiations we don't want to say competitive and cooperative negotiators because we can all do both. Yeah. I have a natural tendency to be more cooperative than competitive. One of the main things I learned from your course, and I'm telling you, there are times it has just saved me an enormous amount of money, is realizing that I'm talking to a competitive negotiator. In a sentence or two, what's the difference between a cooperative and competitive negotiator? Yeah, sure. So a competitive negotiator is someone who is looking to claim value. And they're willing to do that at the expense of the other parties in the negotiation. Uh, what they're trying to do is they're trying to get as much of the pie as possible, if we use the pie analogy. And they are setting things up. Usually competitive negotiators, they're not willing to take a lot of risks. They're not concerned at all about the interpersonal tension that gets created. That was, that was fascinating to me. And it was actually helpful because I would yeah. be offended or I'd say, you know, this person would never do that because that would cost them respect or that would cost us a relationship. And you helped me understand, no, don't take it personally. They actually aren't thinking about the relationship. They're That's right. thinking about the issue. Yeah. And it helped me switch from cooperative to competitive in those situations without being offended by this person. Oh, they don't really yeah, care Or having that. to change your style or who you are. Right. Uh, being cooperative or competitive, it's not going from being nice to being a jerk. Uh, what it is, is it's going from making decisions that are a bit more about capturing value versus making yeah, decisions that are about creating value with the other side. And so cooperative negotiators, these are folks that are, they're looking for more of the mutual win. They're willing to be a little bit more vulnerable. Uh, they're willing to um, be cooperative, even though they know that there's some risk associated with that. 
And as a result of that, they're able oftentimes to create trust with the other side, which often can be really, really valuable in constructing a very effective agreement. But just like there's risk to being too competitive, where you can blow things up that frankly should be pretty easy because you're, you get a little greedy, or at least you give the perception that you're a little greedy. There's also challenges with being too cooperative, and that is you can leave yourself open to being exploited. Within a single negotiation, you will have both at play. And so it's not like one person or one negotiation is always it's forehand and backhand in tennis, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not one or the other. It is going back and forth, which makes it kind of interesting to watch and see play out. I remember another case that I had where we had everyone on our side of the table just convinced that there's no way that we could get this deal for under $10 million. And everyone was just like, we got to pay $10 million. And that was just the final solution. And yet we didn't want to pay $10 million. And a lot of the people that were saying you need to pay $10 million, it wasn't their $10 million. And so for the folks whose $10 million it was, they said, no, 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 no. We want to do better than that. And they were just convinced it can't happen. This was a moment where even though we were on the same side of the table, we had to be competitive with our colleagues to try to manage the expectations that we were going to get it for below $10 million. Now, the reason we needed to do that was because those were the people that were going to go negotiate on our behalf. Right. And they had to believe in it. Now, here's a significant moment because as soon as we were able to get it below $10 million, the folks that wanted the deal done, their instinct was get it done immediately. Wrap it up. Pay the nine and a half or the nine and let's be out of here. Right. But the competitive negotiator, their thought process is a little different. They, if you give them something, they think they could get more. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden, there's a whole other group at the table that are thinking, wow, we may have misread this because we shouldn't have got to 10 million this quick in the process. There's got to be more to get from the other side than just another half million or a million dollars. Let's see if we can't slow things down a little bit and get them down to eight or get them down to eight and a half. And so that's what we did. We heard everything about you're risking the whole thing. They literally could get out and walk at any moment. And that's a big part of what negotiation is about, is it's taking those calculated risks to achieve more. Now, in this particular case, it was, is it worth a million dollars to me to take the risk that they were going to, after we're this close to settling, to get up and storm out of the room and never to come back to the table again? Well, for a million bucks, I'll probably take that risk. Yeah. For 10,000 bucks, maybe not. But for a million bucks, I'll probably take that risk. Yeah. And so we did. And I think we finally got the case done for like eight and a quarter or something like that. That was $750,000 after we already achieved what we wanted to achieve just because carefully we were willing to be a bit more competitive because the signals were that we could be without risking the whole thing. Hmm. You know, that's a moment where the instinct is to be cooperative, but that's actually a moment that's ripe for competition 
but you got to do it in a skillful way or the fear that causes you not to want to be competitive. Right. The fear actually is what costs you. It's not the other side that costs you. It's yourself. Oh, gosh, that's a great takeaway right there. All right. One last thing that I want to cover real quick, because I think it's one of the greatest pieces of advice or strategies within your, your course Tactics are often used in negotiation. They are different than processes. It's different than a framework. And a lot of negotiation teachers, they'll teach these tactics without teaching a process or, or anything. It's like teaching uh, trick shots in pool without ever understanding how to actually play billiards, right? Yeah. Uh, some of them bait and switch. Uh, they bait you with one offer. They switch to another. Uh, take it or leave it. They're willing to walk away from the table. A lack of authority, meaning let me go check with my manager and see if I can do this deal make it personal, patronize, reverse direction, time pressure, physical positioning, which is hilarious. Sometimes you talk about in the course, uh, somebody who negotiates sports contracts with a chair in their office that's lower <laughs> than his chair. So you yep. actually sit beneath him while you're discussing the deal. Uh, bogus demands. And then we all know because we've watched movies, good cop, bad cop. You don't actually teach these tactics in the course, except to say, here's what they are and here's how to know it's happening. But what do we do when somebody's using a tactic against us, because I thought it was fascinating, no matter what the tactic, our counter tactic is the same. And uh, tell us how to deal with these tactics. Yeah, so tactics, they, they jump up in this process a lot and people use them because they, they work. think, yeah, they think they work and they think they help them get ahead. And in many times they do. They do, yeah. Um, and so- Well, they do because people don't know, know that it's happening. They don't anymore. know how to deal with them. Yeah. And so, you know, we don't spend a whole lot of time thinking with people about how to come up with the best tactic. There's books you can buy and all sorts of stuff you can do to get that. Where the real skill is, is knowing how to deal with a tactic when you're presented with one. And for that, there's a really simple process that is effective against any tactic. Uh, first is you have to have the eyes to see. So you have to realize that there is a tactic being used in the negotiation that you're participating in. And that's the first thing is to say, ah, I know what I got going on here. Okay, I, I see how Don's playing this. Uh, this is going to be the, the patronizing tactic where he's going to tell me how great. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's going to come in with some really aggressive ask. Okay, so there's a moment there where once you pick up on it, you kind of know the game that is being played. Then the way to deal with it is to let the other side know that you know uh, and to call it out. And that's what's counterintuitive because a lot of times if somebody uses a tactic, your intuition is to repeat the same tactic back. Or ignore right. it and so, hope it goes away. Yeah. Or yeah. yeah, you're sitting low in a chair, they're sitting high in a chair, you say, I think I'll be standing for the rest of this. That's just using the same tactic they used yeah. against you on them and that doesn't work. Before you continue the negotiation, negotiate the process to get the environment or deal with the tactic or stop the behavior, whatever it is, make sure you deal with that before you continue on in the negotiation. And that's a moment that you have to be very, very intentional. But if you don't deal with it in that way, you're either going to send the message that the tactic's working, which means you're going to get more of it, or you're going to start tacticking back. Right. And once you start doing that, then, you just then things are going to get way, way off course. And so it just becomes a moment where you say, hey, listen, yeah, how about we go do this? And the other party then has to decide, do they want to keep trying to play the tactic or do they want to back off of that and continue to try to move forward and putting a deal together, resolving the problem? John, you are president of the Lowry Group. 
It's at lowrygroup.net, L-O-W-R-Y group.net. You want to take John's courses live or if you want to hire him to help you mediate something that's going on or you're working on a certification. So lawyers, uh, salespeople, executives can get certified by the Lowry Group as negotiators. If you want to know more, we go to lowrygroup.net, again, L-O-W-R-Y. You're also our newest professor at Business Made Simple University. Uh, I took your course a couple times. I learned so much from it uh, that I asked you to come and do it for Business Made Simple University. If you want to take uh, John's course, it's called Negotiation Made Simple. Just go to businessmadesimple.com. John, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks a lot, Don. Great fun. Did you know StoryBrand certifies marketing experts who can overhaul your marketing plan? This week's Marketing Minute tip comes from StoryBrand certified guide, Hunter Davis, who knows how the photos on your website can dramatically impact how a customer engages with your business. Make sure that your photos aren't just featuring your product or your service, so maybe not just a screenshot of your software, but instead take some photos of your customer winning the day in their life. Take a picture of someone using that software, smiling, you know, and feel like I'm actually being elevated a little bit when I purchase this brand. Do the photos on your website clearly communicate the problem your product solves for your customers? If not, hire a StoryBrand certified guide like Hunter Davis today at marketingmadesimple.com. What I love about John Lowry's teaching on negotiation, and the reason I've taken the course three times live and taken it another time again on, on the Business Made Simple platform, is because when John teaches a negotiation, it's not about manipulation. It is not about how to trick somebody into giving you what you want. I think that's the big hang-up with so many of us when it comes to negotiation. We don't want to be manipulative people. We don't want to strong-arm people. We don't want to trick people. We have to sleep at night. But we all do have to negotiate. What I love about the way John teaches uh, in negotiation made simple is that really negotiation is about problem-solving. We both have a problem. We're both trying to get somewhere, and we need to find some sort of solution to that problem. Even if you're a competitive negotiator, you're still problem solving. If you're negotiating with a competitive negotiator, you're still problem solving. You just need to understand the language they're speaking in the negotiation. We don't need to take it personally. If we understand how to negotiate, we understand how to solve problems. We understand how to get to mutually beneficial uh, agreements uh, if we can uh, just follow a process and a framework. Next time you're in a negotiation, don't think of it as some sort of uh, arm wrestling match, some sort of your ego against my ego. It really isn't. It's just problem solving. That's all it is. And if you have a framework and a process, you'll be able to problem solve with the best of them. You can actually be a great negotiator. So my closing thought, I want to thank John Lowry for being on the podcast today. I want to thank him for teaching, doing such a great job teaching about negotiation. He turned me, uh, the person who is least likely to try to strong arm somebody in anything, uh, into a pretty darn good negotiator. I love the results that I've gotten uh, since I learned how to negotiate. So let's all go be great negotiators. You got to negotiate anyway. Might as well be good at it. Have a great week, everybody. The Business Made Simple podcast is here for you every week thanks to our community of listeners like you, as well as subscribers to our online business school at businessmadesimple.com, our certified coaches at certifiedbusinesscoach.com, and our certified marketing experts at marketingmadesimple.com. 
You can also apply to become a coach at certifiedbusinesscoach.com or one of our marketing guides at marketingmadesimple.com. The Business Made Simple podcast is hosted by Donald Miller and co-hosted by Dr. J.J. Peterson and Kula Callahan. It's produced, engineered, and edited by me, Bobby Richards. Doug Kime and Tim Schur are our executive producers, and Melissa Paduzzi, Lindsay Frail, and Carrie Murdoch are co-producers. This is Melissa's final episode producing for the podcast. Mel, you're the best. We'll miss you and wish you the best of luck. This is the Business Made Simple podcast, the best place to grow yourself, the best place to grow your team, the best place to grow your business.